Hey everyone, we're back this week with our new health series called Hormone Happy Hour that I do with Kea Perowit, my dear co-host on the series and co-founder in our business, Bia Wellness. And every Wednesday, Hormone Happy Hour will feature an in-depth interview with a leading women's health expert. Each expert will teach you step-by-step how to eat, think, and move in a way that is designed to help you feel great and create an abundance of energy in your life so you can build your own empire. Now let's jump into this week's episode. I hope you enjoy it. So Kea, this interview was actually fascinating for me. I learned a lot about the difference between chronological age and biological age. You'll hear me mess up those terms multiple times because I was learning with everyone also on the podcast, but explain to us what that even is and why we find it so fascinating. Yeah, it's so interesting actually. And even Dr. Fitzgerald talks about how many people confuse that all the time. Like I confuse it for sure too. But really what it is, is that let's say I'm a 36, how old am I? 36. I'm a 36 year old. I'm like, how old are we? (laughs) But my cells, my body, joints, my organs could all be reflecting the age of somebody older or younger. And that's your biological age. So even though I'm chronologically 36 years old, my biological age could be 29 or it could be 45 or sometimes it could be even older if we're doing a lot of things that are damaging us. So there is actually ways that we can reduce our biological age, which is what we talk a lot about in this episode that Kara has had some super fascinating research done to actually in these studies, she's reduced people's biological age, which is really cool. And I was reading an article recently about a researcher who studies biological age. And she was saying like, there's three things that you really need to dial in on if you want to reduce your biological age, which like, I think we all do, right? We all want to feel younger than we actually are. And of course, living a good, healthy lifestyle, you know, nutrition is really important. The second thing is sleep. And like sleep is so critical. It's number two. And then the third one was really interesting. It was perspective. We know that people who are lonely are more likely to develop chronic diseases. So we know that for sure. Community is really important. It's really important for our overall health and for perspective, but also the way that you view aging matters. So people who kind of think of themselves are like, oh, I'm getting old, I'm aging, I have all these problems of getting old, they actually present older, their organs will present older, their cells will will present older. But people who say like, I still feel young, I still feel good, even though I'm in my 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, even I still feel like I'm in my 40s or my 30s. And I'm, you know, I have a zest for life can also reduce our biological age. So I thought that was interesting that perspective matters so much. And we dive into so many of these topics today. We talk about what Dr. Fitzgerald did in her study to help reduce biological age. We also talk about the impact of trauma and stress on our bodies and how important it is to dial that in. And we talk about preconception nutrition, which was kind of a surprise topic for this, but it was really kind of cool to see how much our preconception nutrition matters and what happens in the womb matters so much for our children and for their overall health. So I'm super excited about this episode. So Dr. Kara Fitzgerald is actively engaged in clinical research on epigenetics and longevity using a diet and lifestyle intervention developed in her research and practice. Her first clinical study, which found potential bio-age reversing effects of an eight-week DNA methylation-supportive diet and lifestyle in middle-aged men, was published on April 12, 2021 in the journal Aging. Now her latest study, published March 22nd of this year, also in the same journal, suggests that similar results are possible in middle-aged 
women. She's an author of two books, Younger You and a companion book, Better Broths and Healing Tonics. She maintains an award-nominated podcast series called New Frontiers in Functional Medicine and an active blog on her website, drfitzgerald.com. We love this one and we know you're going to love it too. So let's jump into it. So Dr. Fitzgerald, you've done a few studies in which you were able to reverse the biological age of the participants of the study. So just for some context for anyone listening, there's biological age, there's chronological age. So my chronological age is how old I actually am. I'm a 36-year-old woman. And there's biological age, which is how fast my body's aging, my organs, my tissues, my cells, which could change depending on a few things. So you were able to reverse the biological age of participants by 3.2 years in one study and then 4.6 years in the other study in just eight weeks, which is crazy, fascinating. So what were some of the factors that you incorporated in, in the study that you think moved the needle in this remarkable way? It's a great question. It was, you know, that's the, the challenge of our intervention is that it's multifactorial. We're doing a we're doing a bunch of different things at once, and then studying what happens with regard to gene expression, which is where we measure biological age. So, and we can talk a little bit about what that is. But so we're looking at patterns of gene expression um, that are consistent with biological age, and seeing you know if at final our intervention moved the needle favorably. And so far, the answer is yes. Um, the cool thing about our approach and the unique piece about our approach is that everything is designed to kind of sweet talk gene expression. It's a program really, really designed to get in there and manipulate which genes are on and which genes are off. And of course, we want the best, healthiest pattern of genes on. And unique, I think, to other interventions is two things. One is the multimodal component. So the fact that we look not just at diet, but we looked at sleep, we looked at exercise, we had an exercise prescription, we had a meditation prescription, and we used two supplements that we'll talk about. So we looked at all of these things, everything specific to optimize gene expression. The nutrition pattern, so the diet that we prescribed is certainly probably the most, you know, really the most unique component in that every single forkful of food that an individual is eating um, is packed with what we call epinutrients. In, in, in fact, every single component of that forkful of food should include these nutrients. So it's just dense in these compounds that have evidence uh, behind them for influencing gene expression. Let me stop there and just see if you have any questions around that. And then we can talk a little bit about those foods. And Yeah, I, I, I think my follow-up question for anyone who's not familiar, what's so interesting about your work is that it lends evidence to the idea of epigenetics. So we have, we're all born with the unique genetic blueprint. And I think a lot of people feel at the mercy of those genes. For example, I have genes that predispose me to inflammation or heart disease or breast cancer or digestive issues, but epigenetics kind of paints a different picture. And so what you're talking about here is that our genes can be influenced. So can you explain a little bit more, like what is epigenetics and why should we care and why does it matter? Sure. That's a really important foundational question. So that's a great question. It turns out our genes really aren't our destiny. So we may look at what's going on in our family and say, I'm going to get heart disease because my mom had it, my dad had it, my grandparents had it, et cetera. There might be a genetic bias there to an extent, but what we understand now is 
much more than our DNA and what our genes, the variants that we might have gotten. It's what the pattern of which genes are on and which genes are off. That's the big deal. And this pattern, influencing this pattern, we sit in the driver's seat of that car big time. Our daily choices over time really make an influence as to whether we're living our best life or not. And I want to say that back in the early 2000s, when the human genome was mapped out, when we identified all the genes in, in our DNA, we thought that we would have the Rosetta Stone. You know, to your point, we would know, we would have a roadmap to what causes heart disease, to what causes diabetes, et cetera. But we didn't. And science pivoted. So we, we realized that it's, it's incredibly more complex than one gene, one disease, or two genes, two diseases, you know, two genes, one disease. So the gene disease pattern was really kind of blown up after we mapped the, mapped the human genome. And that ushered in fully the era of epigenetics above epi, the genes, genetics. Um, and really, again, studying what influences gene expression, what influences the biochemical marks that dictate genes being on or off. And that, you know, really is up to us. So we, the, our genes are not our destiny. You know, maybe 10%, you know, can dictate, can have an influence in longevity. I mean, it's true that there are these pockets of people who have these gene biases and they live for a long time, even if they're like smoking every day and drinking lots, there are a handful of people. They're extremely rare. So there is, and there are some, you know, a, a, actually a really good friend of mine recently had a heart transplant. In his family, there is a genetic cardiomyopathy very clearly, very strongly. And so he had a heart transplant. His sister has a heart transplant. He lost his mom at a very young age because of this um, genetic condition. He lost his brother. But that's the, that's the exception. It just isn't the rule, really. And, you know, it's incredibly empowering, actually, that we get some choice here in living our best life or not. And that is very empowering. And I know you mentioned earlier in the podcast how much food can, was such a core indicator to decreasing the chronological age in your studies, or sorry, biological age. You guys, I'm here learning just as much as everyone listening. So I'd love to hear, you know, maybe what are some of the foods that kind of made that impact and really how diet plays such a big role in that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great question. And and I I will flip bio age and chronological <laughs> age too. So, and I've been doing this for a while. So like, absolutely no worries. So yeah, we're talking about biological age because chronological age, we can't change. Um, there, so we're looking at this epigenetic process called DNA methylation. There's lots of different ways we influence genes on being on and off, but really one of the best researched and arguably one of the most important is something called DNA methylation. Um, we don't necessarily need to understand the details other than uh, lots of methylation happening on a gene will inhibit that gene and um, few methylation. We, in the literature, they're actually denoted as red lollipops. So if you can imagine, just, you know, visualize some DNA, a double-stranded, double helix there, and these red lollipops dotting a region. Those red lollipops, those are DNA methyl groups, and they will inhibit that gene from being turned on. Conversely, if there's an absence of those red lollipops, or if we remove them, then that gene can be on. So it's all about where those red lollipops are, making sure, sure they're in exactly where they need to be 
to make us the youngest, the healthiest, et cetera. So we need to make the red lollipops. We have to do that. That's something called the methylation cycle. That's the red lollipop machine. Nutrients that are really important for this to make these red lollipops include actually, you were, we were talking about seed cycling earlier, um, I think off before you hit record, um, pumpkin seeds, flax seeds, uh, sunflower seeds, nuts, um, some animal protein, uh, you know, if you do, if you eat animal protein, all of them have an important compound called methionine. Actually, you can, you can get methionine in non-animal based proteins as well, but methionine is an amino acid that's fundamental to the methylation cycle. We need B12 and folate so we can get those from, you know, anywhere from liver and, um, greens and algae, um, you know, on and on. Folate comes uh, comes from greens. Mushrooms actually are a beautiful, robust source of folate. Other nutrients involved in making these red lollipops include eggs, if you consume eggs. Um, beets are fabulous. They're fabulous for something called betaine that helps to, to make them. So there's these, so we want to make the red lollipops and the diet is dense in the nutrients to do that. But we then the next really important thing is uh, directing where those red lollipops go. All of these we call epinutrients because they influence epigenetics, they influence gene expression. Um, but the second class of nutrients, these are the beautiful plant compounds that we know are so important and have been used through, you know, throughout time. These have such long, beautiful use histories. I think one of the fundamental ways these compounds are extraordinary is that they help optimize gene expression. This includes um, green tea, you know, used forever, um, curcumin and turmeric. Um, most spices, most herbs and spices are epinutrient wonderkins, rosemary, thyme, garlic, ginger, all of these colorful fruits and veg have loads of important compounds that can help. So thinking about berries, uh, tomatoes, even citrus. Um, in, our, in my book, Younger You, which is based on our research study, we have a 30-page epinutrient appendix. And for anybody who's a little bit anxious about starting a new dietary pattern and thinking it's going to be limited and restrictive, there are just so, 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 so many epinutrient active compounds. So we, it really shouldn't be a heavy lift for us to be eating these all important compounds really at every meal, every day. Yeah, absolutely. So was one study done on men and another women, were they separate? Yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Were so there, our first, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to ask, were there differences in what was incorporated between the men and the women? And I guess my other question to follow up on that. It just any information you can give us age range and then also was there any sort of calorie restriction mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the men our first study was a randomized control study so we hired a clinical research center actually at my alma mater at national university of natural medicine we hired their their health gut research institute there to run the randomized control study for us and we recruited um 44 healthy middle-aged men. We wanted people in both of our, both, both papers, we looked at middle-aged individuals. Um, we want to look at the age. So we want aging to be happening. There's a predictable change to gene expression that happens. That's why we can measure 
biological age because there's just this predictable change that happens over time. And, and we wanted to be able to look at that, kind of isolate that. So we did two things. We looked at healthy people um, and they were middle-aged. So we weren't looking at, say, how diabetes shows up on the epigenome or, or, or you know, inflammatory bowel disease or heart disease, et cetera. We, we recruited healthy individuals for our first study. Um, yeah, again, middle-aged men uh, in the first one. And in the second one, the second one was a case series. It wasn't a controlled study. And these were the early adopters of our program. So once we finished our clinical trial, and then I published the book about it, those people who were just really eager to jump in happened to be you know, healthy and middle-aged and by and large women. So our very first group that finished the program, you know, from the beginning to the end, you know, they tracked, they did what we needed to do to actually have publishable, researched, uh, researchable, you know, and reportable content was this group of, actually there were, there were seven, there was one man, one man in the group, but he, um, he had to leave early, but I did mention him in the paper. So these, this was a group of six women, again, uh, middle-aged, um, healthy. They, these were, they're biohacker women. They're, they're really, really healthy. Both groups at baseline had younger biological age than their chronological age. So they were just really clearly a healthy group and we were able to get them younger still. The difference in what we did in the controlled study versus this group of women, there's a few of them. In our first study, we used saliva to measure biological age, um, but it turns out that blood is a better biomarker, so we or a better specimen. So we used blood in our second study, and that's what we use now, and and we'll continue to use. We use blood as a specimen. Maybe one day saliva will be you know elevated and appropriate to use. It's obviously a lot easier to collect, but for the time being, blood is where we're at. We didn't have a control group, so somebody not doing it. We didn't include that, and we didn't keep these people from taking supplements. So we asked them to maintain their supplement protocol, whatever that was. So at baseline, they were taking supplements X, Y, and Z, and we didn't change it. And then final, you know, they were continuing doing that. Um, whereas in our original group, we only allowed them to take vitamin D and a couple of other things. Otherwise, we didn't want them on supplements or medication. But in our second study, we didn't control for that. The technology, the clock changed a little bit. So while it's fun to say the women you know, got almost five years younger and the guys, you know, a, a little over three, you know, and it's fun and it's, and it's true, but <laughs> I love the it. technology, I know it, yeah, the technology changed a little bit during that time. So I can't, it's not quite an apples to apples comparison, but um, certainly these women were really motivated and, you know, just a really, a great group for us to work with. Yeah. And we talk about it all the time too, on this podcast that women are the drivers of all of this, right? We're the ones who are leading our families through getting healthier. Yeah. Like we're going to rally the people. So it totally makes sense to me that this group of women coming in were the ones that were motivated. They were already taking on some of the principles that you practice. So super fascinating. Yeah, it is. It's great. I mean, I think there's a lot of male energy in the biohacker space and I just, women, you're right. Women are badasses. I mean, they are the early adopters. They are the ones who've really, who've been adopting, you know, using our book and making the recipes and turning their family on, onto it and, you know, buying the book for other people and just, you know, really kind of cutting the edge for us. So yeah, we do have uh, a good 
you know, group of, of biohacker women working with us. And I just, you know, I love it. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. In 2020, I was struggling with some debilitating health stuff. I just got off birth control and suddenly I had acne, mood swings, breast tenderness, and really painful periods. I tried so many things, but the one thing that worked was something called seed cycling. I know you're probably thinking, seed cycling? What the heck is that? It's a natural way to support your hormones using four specific seeds throughout your cycle. The challenge is that seed cycling can be a little complicated to do and kind of time consuming. So I decided to make an organic seed cycling product that is so easy to use. We make it effortless effortless for anyone to get started today. It's called Bia and it's a super easy way to add something powerful to your diet to support your hormones, regulate your cycle, and bring back balance. To learn more about Bia and join our community with thousands of incredible women all over the world, go to BiaWellness.com and that's spelled B-E-E-Y-A Wellness.com and check out the show notes for our promo code to get $10 off your first purchase. Thanks so much for listening and now let's get back to today's episode. And you know, the, the term biohacker always kind of makes me a little nervous as, as someone who is like in wellness and I am taking care of myself. I'm like, gosh, am I a biohacker? That seems like very intricate. But what I love about everything that you preach is like, let's focus on the fundamentals of, you know, I'd love to hear, like, if you were to simplify any way for us to feel good for women listening today, who's like, Kara, I don't know if I'm a biohacker, but what can I do to implement today to kind of impact my own aging process? Yeah, awesome. You're right. Like we 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 thought a little bit about maybe calling the book biohacking for the rest of us. You know, like what is what do the rest of us do? You know, yeah. the people who aren't sort of like tech billionaires, you know, <laughs> living a real rarefied world. Like what do the rest of us do? Um and by the way, actually Kaya, your question earlier was around whether we did caloric restriction in this. And we did a very modest um, intermittent structure. So 12-hour eating window, 12-hour fasting window, just super, super modest. We wanted our program, to your point, Yasmin, we wanted everyone to be able to do it. We didn't want to make it too hard or too aggressive with a narrow fasting window that, you know, only a small percentage of people will be able to adhere to. We wanted our exercise prescription be to be doable for anyone, even a couch potato who's just starting to move their body. We wanted everybody to be able to do it. Um, so a small uh, fasting window and, you know, the nutrients are there again. There are things. There are things that all of us are eating regularly. Coffee, in fact, is an epinutrient. You know, some of the polyphenols in coffee are really healthy. If you happen to be a coffee drinker, you don't have to give it up. It is an anti-inflammatory diet. It's a low glycemic diet. It's a little bit keto leaning. We wanted people to get into what we call background ketosis, so they're making a little bit more. So it's not a ketogenic diet. It is not a ketogenic diet. But there's a little bit of background ketones being produced, and we know that those are epi compounds. They favorably regulate gene expression. They're great for brain health. So we wanted a little background of that. You know, it's high in uh, vegetables. There's some fruits. There aren't grains in the intensive. So we just, we pulled grain out of the intensive. Although after you finish that eight weeks and, you know, you can do grain without an issue, you can bring it back in. The eight week intensive also omits legumes and beans. I'm a huge fan of them. I just want to say that. But for some of us, we don't tolerate them as well. Either we'll get gas and bloating or they might prompt a more significant glucose spike. 
So we just pulled them out for the eight weeks, but you know, they're awesome in protein, they're rich in fiber. There's so many reasons to be eating beans that we want people to bring them in after that eight weeks. So vegetable dense, some, if you eat, if you eat animal, there's some animal protein. If you eat eggs, we want you eating eggs. There's mushrooms. Mushrooms are uh, superfoods in this diet. They're so important. So you should be um, anything from button to shiitake to maitake to some of the noki, some of the more exotic mushrooms. If you can access those, you should, you should definitely be bringing them in. Um, and then, you know, as I talked about earlier, curcumin, green tea, you know, all of the herbs and spices. So those are some of the basic things we can be doing um, all the time. Speaking of um, tech billionaires, um, <laughs> it's seeming like more and more these days, longevity protocols are almost synonymous with supplements. I was watching mm. Brian Johnson and I think he takes like 50 supplements in the morning and then like another set in the afternoon. And I'm wondering from your experience, if you think that we need supplements to achieve a long, healthy life. I mean, we can look at the blue zone people, people who are living long and incredible now. You know, do they have supplement graveyards? As my friend Sarah Godfrey calls them, <laughs> I, one time on Instagram, we did like a supplement graveyard swap. Oh, yeah. We just took our, yeah. I love um, that. Isn't it funny? It's hysterical. Like, yeah, anybody who's sort of in the space probably has a supplement graveyard. Yeah, it's funny. We should we should do that post again. You know, people who are living centenarians who are just living long, fabulous lives aren't taking closets full closet full of supplements every day. You know, they're just it's just not a part of it because their life revolves around the things that support longevity. So eating this healthy whole foods diet, moving their bodies, you know, staying in connection and community, getting sufficient sleep, like all of those things are just baked in. There is a place for supplements. So beyond what we used in our in our study, we we used a simple probiotic and we used a greens powder just because I wanted more of those epi nutrients. I just wanted to pack them in as much as I can. So just a greens powder and a probiotic in our study. But I do prescribe supplements routinely if you need help hitting these epi nutrient targets that I think are so, so important. So for example, um, good quality mushroom products. If you're not eating maitake, enoki, et cetera, um, chaga, cordyceps, whatever, you can take a mushroom combination product. And I think that's, in, I think the nutrients from mushrooms are important enough that, you know, just grab, you know, grab a supplement that's a whole food. So it's not an isolated sort of synthesized component. It's a whole food. If you're not eating turmeric every day and not enough of turmeric every day, you know, grab it. There's plenty of good turmeric products out there. So we can take those. My, I tend to prescribe epinutrients these days to shore up what I think might be limitations. Let me see, beyond that, vitamin D, most of us need extra vitamin D, whether we're getting sun or not, unfortunately. Uh, most of us need a little extra fish oil. So there's some workhorse nutrients I'm sure that you guys are familiar with that, you know, we're just deficient in, unfortunately, in this modern world. So those are my thoughts. I'm, I'm curious what he's taking. I, I, I'll have to look it up. <laughs> it's probably one of his meals. It must be one of his meals. or maybe it, I think, meals. yeah. Yeah, I think so. 
You know, Kara, you mentioned something in the past that really stuck out with me in one of your prior interviews where you said stress is inevitable, but managed poorly. Stress will drive aging forward like gasoline poured on fire. I would love to talk yeah. more about this because if you have a great diet and you're doing all the things, but you still have stress and we all have stress in our life, right? But it's like, how do we manage it? But I would love to kind of get your thoughts around all of that. Yes. So um, yeah, stress, inappropriate stress, which I think, especially in the United States, in this in this modern world that we live in, is it's an inevitability, you know, and we really need to recognize it and sort of rally against it. We need to have built in time to relieve our bodies of the sort of physiologic damage from stress. For me, I think a huge aha and what you heard me talking about was realizing that the biological age clock that we've used in both of our publications now includes um, measurements that are driven by cortisol, driven by the stress response. Like 25% of the biological clocks that we're doing are influenced by the stress response. You know, there's no other variable to my knowledge that has as big of an influence on this particular clock. Like stress is such a huge component there. And it, I think it just hit home to me, you know, the potential for that to be a huge driver of the age of accelerated aging. And, you know, again, it's something that we can really make a difference in. Being in clinical practice, actually, here I am in my, in my office where I see patients, it tends to be the last thing that people want to face. You know, they're willing to come in and do all the labs. They'll change diet. Um, they'll start exercising. They'll take the supplements that I prescribe them. Uh, but I live here in Fairfield County. A lot of people live here who commute into New York City. I mean, you can have a super stressful life living here. It's a long commute. You know, working in the city tends to be pretty stressful in and of itself. I mean, I, I work with a lot of women in my practice who are executives and moms. You know, they're just juggling so, so, so much. And the stress conversation gets gets pushed away. So it's, and, and I know this for myself, you know, just being a mom and, and, and having my own business and all of that, like it, it can be hard for us to just bring it front and center, but I've seen it time and time again, influence, negatively influence people's healing journey. Like they have to just face that piece. In our program, we included a twice daily meditation practice. We wanted people to do at least 10 minutes of a very simple mindfulness protocol twice per day. We don't know, but that could have been, you know, it's, it could have been a really big variable. We'd have to tease out and study each variable separately, but that, you know, that may have been more influ influential than our diet. I mean, I, I sort of, I mean, our diet's so creative and, and interesting and potent that you know, if I have to, pick, if somebody forced me to pick something, I, I lean towards the diet, but the stress compete component is huge. And we really, really focused on that in our uh, program. You, you, you're talking about stress. What are some of the other major drivers of rapid aging? So, okay. So poor quality diet, we're talking about what to eat. I've been t defining that. Um, we don't want to eat the standard American diet. It's toxic. It's so phenomenally pro-aging. I mean, and we can see extraordinarily new research coming out showing that um, we're dying younger, you know, so mortality increased over many years, you know, kind of with the era of modern medicine, antibiotics, et cetera. Uh, and so we hit 
you know, in the 70s, we could live to in the 70s. And we can talk about quality of life into the 70s because it's not great. Um, but we've lost ground on that. So we're dying younger now. And it's not just COVID. You know, that's obviously one of the pieces that have changed these statistics, but it's not. It's the, you know, it's the quality of the diet. It's the, our lack of moving our bodies, you know, in a consistent, you know, solid way. Again, it's the stress piece, as I mentioned. It's toxins, um, you know, just the sort of the consistent assault of toxin exposure, be it in the air, you know, in our outside environment, inside environment, be it on our foods, et cetera. So all of these variables come into play and we know can accelerate um, the aging journey. You know, talking about movement, it's so fascinating. You also mentioned just a few minutes of physical activity can change over 9,800 molecules in our blood. And I was mind blown. I think I saw your Instagram post because there'll be days where I might not get some exercise in, but I'm feeling maybe a little bit overwhelmed because of meetings and everything going on. And I'll just take a quick walk down the street and up the street. And like the awesome. most simplest activity truly yeah. makes a difference. So it I would does. love to hear, yeah, because you work with so many, you know, high powered women and a lot of women listening kind of fall into that bucket. So how do you coach maybe your clients of someone who's saying, you know, I might not have all the time in the world to like go into a gym and work out all the time, but what do you recommend and why are these smaller steps still so impactful in our lives? Yeah. And let me say, just in case I forget, I think one of the coolest pieces is that the older that we get, the more bang for a buck we get from exercise, especially where gene regulation goes. It's awesome. So we don't ever want to try to play the card. I'm too old to move because that's absolutely not true. It's so not true. In fact, we will get more impactful benefit the older we are. I mean, we need to just be doing it all of the time anyway. I mean, just I'll throw out another cool factoid. We hand if so, if you're preconception, if you're thinking about having kids at some point in your life, you will hand that information that your body has stored based on your exercise habits to your offspring. I like to joke you're going to like give your offspring a six pack abs or, or not, but <laughs> it's not quite that true. But you will give like heart health, you know, muscle, metabolic health, et cetera. That information that's been gathered from your own exercise habits from dad and mom will be um will be handed off to offspring so we can really set our kids up in a, in a good way if anybody's preconception out there i just think it's so 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 cool so there's no time like the present to be moving our bodies but yeah to your point what can we do i mean right behind me where i wrote my book is a tread is an is a treadmill desk it's i spend time on my treadmill desk every day i don't spend my whole day on it right now i'm sitting um I'll do a I'll do a couple hours. So when I when I'm in my office all day, I'll do a couple hours of meetings over there and just standing and moving a little bit makes a massive difference. We have stairs here. So if I'm there's different kinds of meetings I need to do sitting versus standing. So if I'm in a lot of sitting meetings, sometimes that means I'm, you know, I'm typing or having to do something that works better here. I'll get up and I'll just run down the stairs, go outside, take a big breath and run back in. So just to your point, 
that it absolutely works. It absolutely counts. Going to what you mentioned about preconception, you know, it's kind of the phase that I'm in in my life. And I actually, I will say during COVID and Kay and I started this business, I will say outside of me dialing in my diet and sleeping well, movement was one piece that I just did not focus on. And I've now brought it back in my life, especially after doing all these interviews with women like you, just knowing the importance of strength training, especially as we go older. And then I actually was working out yesterday and I was pushing myself, which again, I haven't done a great job doing. And I was thinking, gosh, is this going to impact me getting pregnant? Like, is it bad that I'm putting this stress on my body where it might not be helpful in this time frame that I'm in, but it looks like to your point, it's still good to kind of, it's never too late. And if anything, it only benefits the future baby, I guess that we might have. Yeah, totally. Yep. 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 I mean, once you're pregnant, you can actually, you can continue depending on, I mean, you want to do to tolerance. You don't want to start like an intense CrossFit you know, yeah. boot camp or something while you're six months pregnant, that's probably not a good idea to start it then. But if you're doing that, if that's already your thing, or, you know, a friend of mine is almost due and she's still teaching her Zumba classes. So yeah, there's no, there's just, there's, there's absolutely no reason to um, lay off the exercise. And yes, indeed that information, uh, that the epigenetic information that is happening when you're engaging in exercise and changing your gene expression in real time is handed off to your offspring. And I want to say that when we're in the habit, it's that continual engagement that will have the more impactful change. So it's important to just really get in there and, and, and come up with a reasonable habit that you can adhere to. Um, but research also shows favorable exchange, changes just from one exercise. And the same is true with meditation. So we don't have to be, you know, professional athletes, or we don't have to be the Buddha to gain benefit from, you know, exercise or meditation. Just starting the conversation is information enough for our genes to respond to, which I just think is so cool, right? For the, for somebody who's a non-exerciser, we what we created in our, in our research was pretty simple. Again, wanting people to be able to do it. Like my mom, for example, it's just 30 minutes, five days a week was the minimum. You could go up from that if you were inclined, but 30 minutes, five days a week, perceived exertion, 60 to 80% of your maximum. So if you're at 60% of your maximum, you might be sweating a little bit, but if you're walking, you can talk on the phone, or maybe you've got some friends with you. I mean, you can engage in dialogue. You might be breathing a little bit more intensely, um, but it's doable. So my mom likes to walk. She's She lives in um, New Haven here in Connecticut, and she'll, you know, do a few blocks or she's gardening. I mean, that qualifies for her movement as long as she's, you know, 60 to 80% of her perceived exertion. So it should be something that you love to do that you can commit to. I love that. And, and speaking about, you know, we were talking about preconception. I want to talk about the habits that we pass on to children, you know, once they're born in this, in this world, Yasmin texted me this morning and said, gosh, we, we talk so much about like stress management and we talk so much about taking care of yourself younger. We talk a lot about preventative medicine and this comes from our habits that we build when we're little. I have a daughter. I think you have a daughter you mentioned. I do. Yeah, I sure do. How are you, how are you instilling this practice of like, hey, take care of yourself now because it'll lead to major payoffs in the future? Yeah, it's funny. Um, it can be tricky. <laughs> <laughs> 
so funny. I mean, certain, you know, certain times I used to post photos of her on Instagram eating her broccoli robin sam salmon when she was really little. She was like the perfect eater. And, you know, I would get like, you know, little angry emoticons from my sister-in-law who couldn't get her kids to eat, you know, if they would eat anything, she was happy. But then, of course, my kid became that, you know, that if there's any lesson in humility, it's like, if you think your kid is, you know, doing the right thing, they eventually, you know, they're going to throw that out the window. So now it's hard. She would rather eat sugar all day long if she could. But um, I think it's just how we live. So <laughs> it's funny, it, you know, kids definitely keep you, keep you humble, but yeah, you know, we're, we're growing our own food. We're going out and picking it. I mean, she loves it. She just absolutely loves to be able to go out into just into the yard. She knows what edibles we have kicking around and she can grab them. She's freaked out quite a few babysitters, but she'll, you know, and then in our garden, she can, yeah, she's just like, what are you eating? And she'll tell them, um, movement is huge. You know, I'm, she, you know, I am athletic. I love exercise. It's kind of one of my grounding tools and, and she's just taken that on with me. That's just become, you know, part of her world. She understands the need for uh, a healthy microbiome. We've talked a lot about the healthy oral microbiome. That's been a topic of conversation recently. And I think just when we live that, she understands meditation, actually. This is awesome. And this came, this came, I did, this came from outside of the home. I, I've done a little bit with her, but she's in a martial arts class where they always start with meditation. Um, and it's just, I think it's so cool. It certainly wasn't a topic of conversation when I was a kid. Maybe when my mom, my mom started to practice insight meditation when I was a teenager. But, you know, we just didn't have the same awareness that we do now. So I think, you know, that's what I'm bringing to her. And to your point, our environment does influence gene expression. So how we're living, what we're living, our engagement, our interaction, our connection, you know, the, the, the maternal oxytocin, you know, rush, all of this and actually and paternal as well, all of this influences gene expression and it can be uh, definitely associated with healthy, robust longevity. And I should say that the opposite is also true. So there's, unfortunately, there's probably more, there's more research, not probably, there's more research looking at trauma and how that shapes the epigenome. So um, lack of physical contact in infancy, infancy. they've studied babies in um, orphanages who haven't gotten physical contact or stimulation. And we can see that that is a negative age accelerant and can predispose to, you know, the diseases of aging that we want to avoid. So early infancy, childhood can absolutely, adverse childhood events, all of that can change gene expression and then influence us negatively. We can inherit our, our parents and grandparents, great-grandparents, you know, really a few generations out, we can inherit their experiences as well. This can be trauma. And that, again, that's been studied. We know people who were pregnant during and lived in New York during the World Trade Center bombings definitely uh, had epi the offspring had epigenetic changes or have epigenetic changes that predispose them to more anxiety and and um, certain kind of an inflammatory bias and this has been looked at in different uh, in different populations there's something there was an ice storm in Quebec that has been really studied in women who were pregnant during this ice storm physical or emotional there was no difference between the stress it was the it was it, it, physical stress had the same influence on gene expression as emotional so if you thought that you were stressed 
but maybe you didn't, maybe you still had power and heat or something, but you were still having the experience, the psychic experience of stress that influenced genetics also. And their offspring had higher incidence of autism and asthma, interestingly enough. So probably a lot of us, if we look in our family history, and I talk about this in my book, and I actually reflect on my own family of origin coming from Poland, and there was probably some food scarcity, et cetera. So I can sort of track uh, or speculate what I see um, being in my family an increased vulnerability to developing di uh, diabetes and heart disease, et cetera, probably something to do with the epigenetic changes of our ancestors. I think, I guess I think a couple things. I think one, our good habits today are how we change that. I am not a diabetic. In fact, none of my siblings are diabetics. None of my siblings have, you know, it, it, any evidence of heart disease, et cetera. So how we live, we have the chance to change that. I also think it's important that if we know our uh, families come from some kind of a stress, uh, that we, our stress threshold may be lower, meaning we may get stressed out a little bit more quickly. Um, just because we've inherited those patterns. And it's up to us to tend to that. So I think we can change those patterns. And the way that we change those patterns is by recognizing that's how I respond, you know, and I'm not going to sort of push myself to be different. I'm going to honor this. I'm going to give myself a little bit more, you know, downtime or nourishment or whatever we need to work on that. I think over time we can change that and we can build re resilience. That's, that's, uh, I, you know, I really have a lot of, I think that that is true. And I, and, you know, hopefully in the course of research that I'll do over time, we'll be able to study these patterns of resilience and what drives them and how we nurture them, et cetera. It's such an interesting thing. Super fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And this is like, this is information. So you, you know, getting ready in um, for your for your journey to to motherhood like that is information you're going to hand off you know you and dad i mean it's such a it's it's really cool and it, i think it can motivate us in in a in a special way but let me just stop i want to hear what you what you both have to say <laughs> i'm taking this another way i know we're talking a lot about research and science but i had an interesting experience working with an energy healer i've never done it before i was just curious and it's not so much to listen to what they say but i always think it's interesting about how you react to what they say whether it's true or not you know we can that's up for grabs but she had mentioned a lot of the energy that within me was ancestral and she's like did your mom move when she was younger when she was 16 and flee a country and she did wow. and listen whether she feels wow. it in my body or not I was like wow I wonder if you know I, I definitely feel like I probably run more anxious I never realized this because I was never in tune with my body until now I'm older and you know I'm off the birth control pill I'm more healthier so I've really connected that mind-body connection in the most beautiful way but I love what you said don't push yourself to be different because so many times I'm sitting there and I'm like why do I feel overwhelmed and stressed? Like everything is wonderful. I'm safe. Things are going well. And I think that's just me regulating. I don't know if nervous system is the right way. And that's something that's my own journey to work through. But I just love because so much of the time that we're in that situation, it's like, 
I catch myself thinking, why am I like this? And it's like, you know what, this is who I am. And I just have to work through it. And it's already getting better and better. So I just want to share that story in case it, you know, inspiring to anyone listening. But I love how you said you can change it. You can change it. You can build that resiliency. So certainly your mom's experience would have shifted, you know, gene expression. Um, I don't know how it it couldn't. Likely some of that information was handed down to you. And yes, I think that, you know, your good habits and you're intentionally cutting yourself a break, you know, and really doing it over the long haul because we can change. I mean, we know that we can change if we if we tend to become anxious. There are things that we can do so that we're, you know, more resilient to the ravages of anxiety. I mean, anxiety can take us down or you know, or not, or we can work with it and really go stronger. So yeah, you're actively working on changing, I think, some of those patterns. And it's so interesting too, because when Yasmin, you were talking, I was thinking that some of these things that we feel about ourselves, maybe feeling too sensitive or too anxious are actually kind of superpowers because it enables us to take better care of ourselves. Like we're like, we know that in this situation, I might have this sort of reaction or in this environment, I might not like it. So we are the ones that kind of just actively take better care. So in you were explaining about your mother for uh, my brother, Drew, who's also Yasmin's husband. When my mom went into labor with them, they were in Kenya and there was an attempted coup and they didn't know if they were going to actually make it out of the situation. There were no doctors available. My father couldn't see my mother, didn't know if he was ever even going to be able to meet his son. It was a really traumatic situation for them. And my brother has always been so sensitive to inputs in his body. He has a sensitive microbiome. He can't smell certain. If he walks into a store and there's perfume, he's so sensitive. And I wonder all the time, like, is the trauma from his childbirth create this sort of sensitive environment in him. But I feel like because of that, it enabled him to go down his health journey and be able to help other people. So it's just kind of like a long winded way of me saying that sometimes these things that feel like they're inhibiting us are actually like our superpowers. Yeah, that's so fascinating. God, you know, I we just we all have these, you know, these these experiences. Yeah, it's extraordinary. We do. I think we do inherit some of that information and those early those early experiences when our epigenome is sort of wide open, you know, especially in utero, especially in the first trimester, that's a very, very impactful time. That's when that information is actively being laid down. Those lollipops that I talked about are being, you know, shaped to, you know, just make a human, to grow a human. In fact, let me just say, since we're talking about all of this, it's such an an important time that in the book, I created a third diet. I mean, I don't, there's no PR around it, but it's called the Younger You Hybrid. And it's, um, it's a pregnancy program. It's a preconception and pregnancy uh, dietary pattern that I think is optimal, that is handing all of that epigenetic information, you know, nourishing our, you know, the growing baby and all of this information. And as I was writing the book, I was like, I'd be remiss if I didn't create a program for that 
incredibly epigenetically active time. Um, and maybe I, I would love to get it out into the world. So I'm happy we're having such a lengthy conversation here. It's been all the attention has been on biological age reversal, understandably, but this is more impactful of a time you know, when we're laying that information down and building a human that's all about epigenetics. So yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm thinking it, it, it'll have its moment in the sun, but and we have to plug it because that's our yeah. audience. Like that's most of the many of the women who follow us are women who are thinking about that. That's so cool. So yeah, read the first couple chapters and then the younger you hybrid the pre-pregnancy and pregnancy diet, I think is chapter 10. You know, you can just flip over to that and there's a, you know, you can use the same recipes. It's just the macronutrients are tweaked a little bit. We need more protein, et cetera. Uh, you need more calories in general. So, so, so things are redesigned a little for that time period, but, um, you know, you can use the same recipes and the nutrient appendix, you know, we just should be eating, eating that information all of the time at every meal. Uh, earlier, you mentioned the healthy fats that you incorporated in Younger You and you mentioned flax and pumpkin, which we're huge fans of. You guys of. are huge fans. Of. That's so cool. That's yeah, cool that you're, that you're bringing cell, uh, seed cycling. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I world. would love for you to talk about what about these fats in particular are so beneficial well, it's the nutrients in the, so not just the oil, so not just the isolated oil from it. It's just the nutrients found in these seeds are, you know, just epinutrient wonderkins. They're super, they're important for the methyl, making the red lollipops. They also direct where the red lollipops are being laid down, but primarily these, these seeds are big players in making the all important red lollipops. I mean, and this is like, you know, just to give context around it, you know, everybody knows when you're pregnant, you need to take extra folate, right? This is huge. It's a given. Everybody knows they need to be, you know, maybe if they're doing a baby, a, a, a multi, a prenatal multi, there's extra, there's always extra folate. We've got a mandated folate fortification program in this country. So any grain has to have folate. And you'll see that in a lot of plant milks as well there's folate added in fact we can become we can we can become folate toxic in this country if we're not careful and i talk about this in the book but folate is huge because it makes the red lollipops you know it's one of it builds dna and it makes these red lollipops so if you think about it anything that helps us make these all important methyl methyl groups that regulate gene expression um, are massive and so you know these seeds are doing that so they're just really, really essential to the growing baby. And they're essential really at any life stage. Um, the older we get, interestingly enough, the aging process has very, very impactful changes to DNA express to, to DNA methylation and gene expression. So that there's these very predictable changes to these red lollipops that sort of drive the aging journey in sort of the equal and opposite way that, you know, pregnancy and early infancy, you know, drive sort of growth and development. So all these fabulous things that we see in our babies or in our growing um, uh, fetus when we're pregnant, all of these fabulous changes, they sort of equal and opposite. There's like, it's this negative trend when we hit middle age and beyond. So we want to be applying the same information at both times. We really, really want to be exercising our good habits, you know, to sort of keep the changes from happening to our uh, epigenome. Does that make sense? No, it definitely does. And I know we're coming here on time, so I'd love to end on our last question here. I know 
we unpack so many things that we can do to reverse our aging and just have a better lifespan, health span. But if you could boil it down to maybe, let's say three things, if possible, that someone listening can take away from the interview today that you wish that they knew, what would it be? And what would those three things be to increase our health span and lifespan? Okay. That's pretty easy. So any age, any journey, any point on the journey. So you're going to be a mom, you're a new mom, you got kids, um, or your middle age and beyond. We want to be eating epinutrients in every forkful. And we can do this. We can do this. This is within our reach. We want to be moving our bodies and we want to be doing something to sort of nourish and de-stress. You know, if we can do those three things, you know, we're going the distance. Super simple, but so powerful. Thank you so much, Dr. Fitzgerald, for joining this us. This was and fun. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. It, was a great day. it was great to be with you. I'm, I, it's, yeah, it's a really interesting podcast. And I'm glad it was fun to be able to talk about this information that I don't tend to talk about as much. So good. Yeah, we love it. And we're so excited to share it with our community. So thank you again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.